Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going to Podcast. This week's guest is Colin Cameron, a highly experienced professional business executive within banking, aviation and the power industries. Colin, welcome to the show. I wonder if you could just tell us, how have you found this unusual time and what have you been doing to manage it to keep yourself busy? Well, actually, um, on the way back from Australia, uh, I was flying on the 23rd of March when the lockdown happened. And uh, currently I have a house in England, in Yorkshire, but also have a house in Spain. My plan was to come back from Australia, avoid the lockdown and get to Spain. Uh, but we landed into uh, Stansted Airport and we ended up having to get a taxi up to Yorkshire because there was no uh, flights into the airport we were originally going to be. So I was stuck in England, not sure how to get home. And, and my daughter was living in her place in Yorkshire and she had a, a roommate who was uh, working in ICU at uh, St. James's Hospital in Leeds. So we couldn't go there when the conditions of the lockdown came out. So uh, we scratched our head and unfortunately, uh, over the years, I've still kept, I've got a caravan lodge down in Croy Shore on the west coast in Ayrshire. Uh, we actually drove that night overnight to about four in the morning and landed in, in Croy Shore. And we actually were in the quarantine period from uh, March through to June in uh, that caravan in Croy Shore. And the weather has been fantastic, by the way, while we were there. So we were very lucky. But that, it was like a lifeboat for us. So that's where, where we've been. But uh, I have to say, though, um, the inactivity was something that I think we all wrestled with. Uh, what happened, though, during that time? I've actually recently been an independent consultant working for uh, a company who, actually, if you, if you could believe this, is big consultancy firms actually need a lot of more mature, experienced people to help their younger consultants to get the real flavor of what really business is like. So I'm, I'm actually been doing a lot of projects like that. Even people like McKinsey's have been coming to me asking for advice because they're approaching a client, maybe a big bank or some uh, investment firm where they're trying to help them. Colin, you're, you're uh, talking about uh, COVID and we, we, we always keep that question in because it's been so pertinent to everybody. It's been such unprecedented times, but uh, yeah. we like to also move on. So we're going to take you right back to uh, Scotland oh. and your education experience. Uh, it's a yeah. question we like to ask everybody is, how did you find your education experience in Scotland? Well, actually, um, I was glad I went to University of Strathclyde. I was, it was the right place. I did mechanical engineering. I would never have picked that subject. It was my physics teacher that advised me because he said I was good at physics and maths. I had no idea of the journey it was going to create for me. But I actually, I enjoyed university because I had a lot of good friends there. And you got, you know, as, as some of us, uh, I'm sure, have had the same experience that I've some favorite lecturers you get along with and could learn a lot from others who you could not comprehend. <laughs> but, uh, but also the other, the other dramatic change as we all experience when we leave school and go to university, you have to be much more self-disciplined about teaching yourself because what they do is they just rally information at you. So uh, I think a lot of people struggle with that, but I found it fine and I found uh, working with my classmates a lot more. So it was great from that point of view. I think the, the tricky bit, if I was being a little bit overcritical, I don't think they had, a, had mastered the idea about what do you do with these students once they graduate. Of course, they had like a round robin, all these companies coming through 
looking for some bright spark with a, a brain the size of a planet, but that's not real as, as we know. And, and actually at the time when I was graduating, it was 1982, and we were in quite a, an industrial downturn in Scotland. Uh, the oil industry was probably the only one for mechanical people anyway to look for. There was very, very little going on. And you had the quotes of the day like Norman Tebbit coming out saying, oh, you need to get on your bike and find a job. <laughs> well, I did, actually. <laughs> Colin, you, 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 you've, yeah. you've always started taking, sorry for interrupting you, but I remember Norman Tebbit, and it, it leads us in nicely, I suppose, yeah. to the next question, which was uh, Norman Tebbit did visit Babcock's, and I was there, I, and you were there at the same time, which is bizarre. <laughs> but... Uh, experience did you pick up from Babcock's? I think the, the one thing I would say about Babcock, because I'd had a few years of engineering experience before that, but, but quite different. I think what if I, I think we should be really proud of what that factory was. It was the best nuclear fabrication factory in the world at one point, and one of the largest in Europe, certainly. I think the, the people who would be doing the fabrication, whether it be the welders, the platers, even the guys who were the managers, they, they all were time-served people, practical people who knew stuff that you couldn't get in a book or a piece of paper or a drawing. I think the other thing is that I think Babcock itself, it was well ported by the government with a lot of government projects. I don't think the government realised how good a business that was. And so when the, the government projects dried out, and then you had things like the Allen Bar project, Stuart, if you remember, where with all that steelwork, hundreds of tons of steelwork stuck out in a yard in quarantine due to sanctions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they really, that, that, that business struggled with its business model. But the people who had those skills, and, and when there was a lot of redundancies uh, in the 90s, if you recall. I mean, when I was yeah. there, it was about 500 people when I first went to Renfrew. And by the time I left, it was just over 200. And there was a lot of very highly skilled welders, and, and I mean, people working to nuclear standards who went down the road. Yeah. So I think what I learned about that was that just um, how can you, when you've got a business like that, you have to have the conscience of looking after very highly trained people like that and not just let them walk down the road. So I felt a little bit disappointed about that. Uh, but I thought the engineering work that we were doing was, was fabulous. I mean, you know, some of the things I was involved in, Stuart and yourself, yeah. I mean, we were, yeah. uh, we were building brand new uh, stainless steel specifications, making new metallurgical standards for welding. It was fabulous stuff. Um, great memories. Um, yeah. And sometimes I wonder where that experience is now because, you know, Scotland was the home of fabrication with the shipyards and everything else and, and steelworks. Uh, and it's all gone now. So wonder, you know, how, how we lost all that skill. So there's something, a lesson for me when I, when I was there, not only about learning about the technical side, but the people side. How do you make sure that these people have alternatives and also that you don't lose some of the things that you cannot learn from other than these people being able to show others how to do it. So, yeah, I mean, Babcock was a great experience. That's right. You you then moved on to GE Caledonia and you were sent on the Six Sigma course. Can you tell us a bit more about that? If you remember the airline, British Caledonia, the Scottish airline. Now, of course, they were bought over by British Airways, but they actually, General Electric in America, sold their engines to British Caledonian when they bought the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 aircraft. 
And part of the deal when British Caledonian bought those um, aircraft, they bought those engines from GE on the premise that they would uh, install a factory in Scotland and show the airline staff themselves how to overhaul those engines. And that factory um, has survived. It's survived beyond even British Caledonia, which is gone now. But the name Caledonian was kept. Uh, I moved there, it was called Avial Caledonian, but it was all was known as Caledonian Airmotive, which was the original brand that was on the factory. Yeah, I mean, I was hired there as a project manager because they were re-engineering the business. And they had quite a, an entrepreneurial managing director at the time, a guy called Stephen Henderson. He was also uh, an absolute uh, shoot-from-the-hip type person. He was something else. I like that. But uh, he, had, he, he really... It was it was a great influence. So people loved him. Uh, you know the the guys in the shop floor. He could talk to them at the same time. He'd be in any business environment and and really take it out there with a deal or whether smoothing up with a client or whatever. He just had such a, a communication skill, Stephen. See when he was angry, he didn't want to know him. Had to hide from him, but. Learned quite a lot from it because we, we were in the re-engineering side. So I was a re-engineer initially. General Electric bought the business. And as soon as General Electric were buying business at that time, Jack Welsh was still at the helm of GE. And he's one of my heroes. He, he was uh, phenomenal. I got to meet the guy and, and work under him for a little while as well. But he bought Caledonian. And what he did with it is that, uh, as the model was, the GE model was you needed to integrate the people and integrate the financial systems. So the first thing they did is they changed the general ledger to their financial system. So right away they could see, get control of how that business was running financially. And then the second thing is they had a leadership development um, edict, which was uh, using Six Sigma as a methodology to train uh, all levels of management at senior level all the way through the ranks and, and make that part of the talent program. So they selected people uh, from a business they were acquiring and you were put in there, you were taken out the job you had, you would not be going back to the job you had. You had to go through a program which was very rigorous and it was a dedicated program and you were there for minimum two years. And if you succeeded, you would do well. If you didn't succeed, there's a chance you wouldn't be there at all. <laughs> so I was I was one of the first to get pulled out into that uh, at Caledonian as part of the integration. So when GE acquired Caledonian, I had to go into this program. And I never looked back, to be honest. I mean, it was like a duck to water. It was just so relevant to what we were doing. Um, and I think, you know, we had a, a massive big project, uh, which is if you look at the, the archives at Harvard Business School, you'll see there's a project called Wing to Wing. And that was my project. I was working on that project. And what they did is they, from a client point of view, they tried to look at changing the business model because GE was a fantastic, phenomenal financial money-making machine. But it needed to be much more customer-centric. So they used Six Sigma uh, as a way to analyze how the business could make things better for customers rather than just the, the balance sheet and the profit and loss statement. So uh, wing to wing was about taking, you know, if you're overhauling an engine, an airline wants to keep their, their airplanes flying, apart from during the lockdown and COVID. But uh, if they had to ground an aircraft that was not earning revenue because there was delayed waiting and an engine getting swapped, then the time it takes to put an engine back onto that airplane is time lost on revenue. 
So uh, our job was to try and get that speed or turnaround time from engine coming off the plane to that, that original engine going back to the, to the airline and keeping a minimum amount of time of that airplane on the ground. So, uh, but wing to wing was the project and we used Six Sigma um, as a methodology to tackle it. And uh, at the end of the day, we had huge success. Uh, within a year, they, they promoted me to be the Six Sigma quality leader of the business. So I was the, the right hand man of the managing director. And I had responsibility for the performance uh, of the fulfillment process of the whole factory. So it was great because uh, it was just like you were on this journey. Uh, you just got this adrenaline burst because there was so much to do, so much to learn. And a lot of bureaucracy that used to be at Caledonian when it had its, uh, how would I say, people who were sort of sitting in their shoes in their jobs for decades, suddenly there was a new regime we could change things much faster. So the speed of change when GE came in was phenomenal. And I, I loved that. That was like a drug to me. I really took to that. Uh, so much so I had to sometimes be slowed down because I was going too fast with the rate of change I wanted to do things. But the factory was so successful. Uh, we trebled our revenue in two years and we doubled the profit on top of that. So uh, we had a phenomenal success there. Um, and the client satisfaction side, you know, we're talking about dealing with Federal Express, Continental Airlines, British Airways. So it was, it was big customers. But uh, yeah, I've got fond memories. Colin, you, you said that uh, the rate at which you've moved on has been dramatic. And I'm going to really sort of yeah. just move things on from the engineering side of things, which you were obviously hugely successful for. You've had a career transition into the finance industry. And I was really curious to find out how you managed to transcend from engineering into the finance sector. Yeah, it is interesting, Stuart, as you know. Um, I mean, I don't want to offend any accountant, but you know, you can always uh, you can always learn accountancy if you're an engineer, but accountants can never learn engineering. So I think one thing that General Electric did, though, uh, and I have to say that part of their leadership development was to to get people to learn all the mechanics and dynamics of a business. So you could be in a, a business that's got a long product life cycle, products that could last 30 years, versus a short life cycle product, like a light bulb, you know, so from an aircraft engine to a light bulb, for example. Or you could also have businesses who, um, you know, certainly the industrial side where you had to be very sharp on cash from operations as a performance measurement, and, and keep working capital low as possible. To the financial services side, where it's all about building the balance sheet and actually building assets and lending money out. Um, so what, what happens is that they tried to, as they were grooming their executives for more senior executive and officer level roles, they tried to give people the chance of a different flavor of a different business that's in a different life cycle, um, whether it's new or old or running down or growing, and also to give them also the, uh, from a leadership point of view, how do you influence an organization when you're trying to also manage a balance sheet? Uh, and the, the story behind me moving to GE Capital uh, Services side, there was a guy uh, who was the European Chief Executive and President of GE Consumer Finance. 
His name was Dan O'Connor. He was an Irishman. And I met him at a, a GE conference, uh, had me earmarked to talk to me about trying to tap into the consumer finance business. And he said that he had bought all these banks. He'd bought about 14 different banks across Europe. Uh, they had a fairly successful model in the UK and Ireland and a couple other banks that they had got in the northern uh, part of Scandinavia, etc. But then they were buying banks in Austria and all along that southern Mediterranean area part of, of Europe and including uh, a JV with guarantee, which was a Turkish bank. So it became unruly for him to manage it. And he knew that the type of people he had in his business who were financial services people, they didn't know how to restructure, re-engineer it. So he needed someone uh, to come in and set out a strategy and help them change the culture a bit and also take over hands-on to, to make sure that the operational expenses to contribute the value of the revenue, that, that profit margin equation was their productivity measurement. So someone to come in and take that over. So uh, he convinced me to do it. Um, he made me a very good offer, but it meant leaving. It meant leave. I was actually in, living in uh, Prague in the Czech Republic. I was the uh, European uh, Sourcing Operations Director at that time for GE Aircraft Engines. I went and did the transfer over to consumer finance. I, I, I said, what am I getting myself into here? First couple of days in that business, I landed in there. I sat down with the finance manager for two days. This is right, just show me from start to finish how you make money. And after he showed it all to me, he's a really clever accountant, how they actually went and developed the business and won over new business, etc. I could see it was just a gambling machine. It was just incredible how they were doing it because it was unsecured debt. Uh, and this was 2003 uh, when I moved over there. And this was just on the onset. I could see something coming before we had the credit crunch. I couldn't believe it. You know, the average customer was a 25-year-old single female with a store card with a credit balance of £14,000 paying 29.9% APR. So, and that was with Debenhams, who <laughs> was given 10% discount on any clothes that they bought. Uh, and we were only making money from selling uh, PPI. <laughs> and I thought, what am I getting into here? Them. So this is 2000. <laughs> oh, I tell you. I, well, at times, Callum, I was sitting thinking, oh, take me back to an aircraft engine, please. You know, so. Um, but, but fortunately, I, I got to talk to the IT guys uh, and also the risk guys. Uh, my job there was, I was the productivity leader for the business. So I was in charge of the money. And, and I had to try and make sure that not just cutting costs, but actually make money from the money you spent. But the IT guys and the risk guys, they were the, the top people for me in, in that business. So, uh, but yes, it was quite an, an interesting uh, transition. And obviously, the, you know, the finance industry has been really good to you. It's taken you all over the world. Had you had you yep. aspirations to, to travel uh, internationally? When I graduated from Strathclyde, uh, my first job was in the Middle East. So I worked for two years uh, on the construction of Jerry Airport, including the big Hajj terminal they built for the gateway to Mecca. So I'd worked in Saudi for a couple of years and came back um, and then worked in Hashim and Torness uh, power stations for British Steel for a couple of years. Before I then went back, I was tapped by the MOD. I went back and worked for three years 
for the managed defence deviation um, in Saudi Arabia again. So I did three years there. So I've had five years at that point. And then in aircraft engines, uh, I had three years in uh, Prague. And I had a year in America moving between uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and Cincinnati, Ohio, which is the headquarters for aircraft engines. So I'd already had that uh, UG, if you want to call and it that. Blood. So, and yeah, I enjoyed, yeah. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the different parts of it. But we, we did a lot of uh, business development with governments over in India and Singapore and China about taking um, skills, unfortunately, sometimes job transfers, but uh, going over and building capacity like in Dargaon and New Delhi, uh, we set up call centres there, collection shops down in Jaipur, uh, analytical centres in Shanghai, and uh, even turbine blade repair shops in Singapore. So I was used to doing that sort of stuff. So and, and so therefore, I, I actually embraced it. I quite enjoyed meeting different characters, different nationalities, not forgetting where I came from. Um, and I think that was the other part of it. I was able to find a way to communicate with these guys. I had to learn a bit of the languages here and there. Uh, I'm quite good at Arabic, uh, quite honestly, because I've had so much time over there. Um, and then bits and pieces in other languages. But, uh, but otherwise, uh, it is actually, anybody who does it, it it's, it's two ways it affects you. It can make you feel unrooted to uh, where you originally came from. Uh, but also at the same time, you gain so much more. I think uh, it develops your character in a different way. Your tolerance level uh, is much better, for my, for my sake anyway, and certainly my kids and my wife's sake. The, the life experience makes you a much uh, a different person from what you would have been if you'd just stayed where you were. Um, so, I, so I actually, uh, of course, I'm very pro for it. The, the downside, as I say, is that you do lose your roots a little bit. Colin, I'm going to take you back, if you don't mind. Uh, when you left Babcock's, I remember you leaving and you moved to GE Caledonian. One of the things that you first spoke about when you went down to Caledonian to me was a book called The Goal. And I think the, yeah. the, the author was Jeff Gold. Elijah Goldrack, it was. Elijah Goldrack. Goldrack. He wrote That's it, the yeah. one. And uh, from that, I just wondered if uh, you obviously got motivational from or motivation from that specific book, but was there any yeah. other business books or motivational books that you would say are inspirational to you? I do, I do rate Jack Wells highly. Uh, I think a lot of the things that Jack was trying to teach the modern managers, his books, so there's, a, there's a book out there winning, uh, and there's a, many books he's written, as even his wife has developed a lot of these materials as well. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. Now, he, he, he wrote, if, if it's for business, he wrote some phenomenal stuff. Um, I think the other thing that I've found myself reflecting on, um, at school, I didn't have the best of history teachers. But I think uh, with, with what happened with Brexit and then what's been happening now with COVID and, and the whole open gambit on what's happening with trading, and trading suddenly becomes tool to play political games with. I actually found myself going back a bit and looking at what is it that, that trading is about. And I think um, I, I found Mark Carney, who was the, the governor of the Bank of England. Okay. Uh, yeah. He one day, uh, at one of his earlier public communications, he explained the story about there's a big painting uh, on the ceiling 
I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful building, the Bank of England, London. Uh, and on the, on the ceiling, it was a, a painting of the, the ships coming up the Thames and, and there's a weather vane. Uh, and it's interesting, he says, you know, the very basics of trade was when the wind was blowing west, you knew the ships were coming to England to trade. And as the, the, the ships get empty and the wind was blowing east, the, the ships would go away again. So, and that's painted on the, the, the ceiling of the the meeting room where the Monetary Policy Committee meet in the Bank of England. And the way he told the story, and I thought, you know, there's, there's huge history uh, around all of this. Um, and when I, when I look at even, uh, and this is where we don't educate it the way I think we should, is that when you look at how people were operating in the Crusades, so in, in the, you know, over a thousand years ago, people were making the journey to the Middle East because it was the promised land, they could get new land, they could farm it, you could trade, you could become richer, you could have a better life. But it was damn hard to see the, the royal battles and everything that happened. But actually, I think there's so many uh, lessons from history that when you get people like Mark Carney, who's a very good communicator, explaining the story, it's great. Because, you know, for example, if you take Brexit, uh, of course, I was in a European bank at the time, so I was and not in favour of the volatility. But when you see the opportunity uh, of Brexit, economically, it's huge, the opportunity. Uh, so, but, I, you know, I didn't understand it at that time. Then I realised there's a lot, because I had a lot of understanding of economics, but I didn't understand the trading side of it as much as I should have. And historically, human uh, nature uh, is there to trade. We are, that's what we do. Uh, so it's, every one of us has got a bit of that in us, whether you're even just putting something on eBay or whatever, you know, it's there. Uh, and so, and it's something can breed entrepreneurship. And I don't think it captured the right way in the education system today. I don't mean make everybody hungry profiteers. I just mean that people can make a, an earning, make a living and make the world a better place if they had some component of entrepreneurship in their DNA. It's there. We just need to awaken it. And that's why I, I, I did a lot of uh, reading on that, just to make sure I understood it better, Stuart. Uh, of course, it was, uh, you know, even if I think the city of Prague, where I was, lived for three years, that was built early on in the Baroque period by these uh, fantastic stonemasons that made these beautiful buildings architecturally. But it was people who decided to settle there on the rivers around that central European area, including the Danube that goes to Vienna, etc., and all the way through to Hungary. They built trading posts that became these big cities, you know, cities like Vienna and Krakow, Prague. So it kind of all, I got a lot more how things happened. And, and if, you, if you take the syndrome in China right now, we helped China over the last 20 years to boom. I mean, I was part of it with GE. And what they've done, they've built all these big mega cities now. So that, that's the modern day version of that. So, it's, so th this whole trade and the ability to trade uh, is very important for the generations coming because things will be different. Channels will be different. The ability to communicate will be different, but we have to make sure that the future generations get this. So money as a financial person is obviously really important in your life, but has it been a driving factor for you in your career or in your personal life? Well, personally, we've benefited from it, Calm. I wouldn't deny that. But to be honest, it's um, I follow people. Mm -hmm. 
So um, it's people that talk me into like the little story I shared with Dan O'Connor. He he was somebody I could follow. Yeah. So I said, okay. Uh, and then so that first element of trust when someone you don't know approaches you about an opportunity, if you can get that element of trust, it's usually about, can I work with this person? Can I get along with that person? So over time, uh, when you're in demand, yes, you can be a bit more fussy. But even when you are searching for a job and hoping for an opportunity, you should still be, uh, in, in your own self, be clear about who it is you're going to be working with. We're going to ask a wee question that always makes people squirm now, Colin, but it is for <laughs> do, do you recognise yourself as being successful then? And if not, when do you think that will be? Well, I look at my success through others, uh, Callum. Um, there are people who worked for me. Right, so if I take it from a professional point of view, there are people who worked for me who've been successful after having spent a spell with me. And... Uh, I like to, I take a bit of pride in seeing them be successful. An example would be a young guy called Alan Kelly. He's not a young guy anymore. Alan went on to being a, a general manager. He was yeah. at G. Caledonia. Yeah, Alan used to work for me. And so I, I pushed Alan in certain directions. And Alan and I um, going really well. But it, it, that's just an example of a local guy who had too modest view of himself but once I pushed him into doing things because I asked him to go and look at finance because he was a, a repair engineer and I asked him to go and look at the billing processes in finance and suddenly became a whiz uh, so he was actually dismantling the accountants he was really good at it but, uh, but Alan uh, became very successful so there's, there's lots of little stories like that even in every country I've been um, so that for me when I see that I feel good about that um, and then the two big projects yourself Colin though because that's the point do you actually because immediately you do what Scottish people do all the time they detract from that question so it is about do you recognise you being a success what you said there was I he's a success so I understand the modesty street and, the, and I think that's a good quality but see the minute you mention you've got it you've been you're not being modest. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's one of those quandaries, Callum. <laughs> I, I think, though, to exhibit modesty is still a desirable human behaviour. People like that. Yeah. So we should never lose that. But at the same time, um, I'm pleased with what I've achieved. You know, personally, I think uh, my family's benefited many ways. But at the same time, I've sacrificed yeah. Some of my, I've been in some ways selfish because I've been so dedicated to, to the way I work. You know, my work-life balance at times was not great. So, but then even now I'm taking this year out, I'm spending more time with the family. So they're all earning a living, which is thankful. So I'm blessed for that. Uh, the wife's still hung about. She's put up with me for over 30 years. So I think I did okay there <laughs> so far. <laughs> Um, but professionally, I think, yes, I think the Wing to Wing project was successful. Uh, it wouldn't be in the Harvard Business School as a case study if it wasn't. I think the other one is the Honeywell deal as well. That was a huge deal. So it's a privilege to have been involved in these things um, and to work directly under Jack. I mean, that was, uh, yeah. So to be there, to get there was to be successful. But I think that the... the the, the person calling Cameron and the attributes of calling Cameron is a mixture of people influencing me. Even my dad, my mum and dad influenced me in certain ways. 
You know, my dad was probably the one person who called it out very simply. He says, never forget you're in the people business. So no matter what new tools you get, whether it's computers and all the rest of it, if you can't deal with people, then you're not going to be able to succeed. Yeah, yeah. So it's very simple. Yeah. Because you were so busy and you were developing your own career, did you find time for uh, managing your health? It is important, Stuart. I think once we get older, we we recognise that. I mean, um, I was actually uh, reasonably fit in my 20s and 30s, and I was doing a bit of martial arts when I was in my 30s. I didn't really do so much of that afterwards, although we were living in what I would say is healthy environment. You know, I spent seven years in Singapore, and we were outdoors, and we were eating really healthy, and we were active. But I wasn't, you know, going to the gym, or uh, I wasn't actually playing football or anything like that. I was active enough, but I was I was so damn busy. But um, but now, I mean, uh, certainly taking more attention to that, Stuart, uh, making yeah. sure I get my steps in, etc., <laughs> or building pallets as we were doing today. <laughs> Rachel and I were building pallets. <laughs> They met a beach uh, bench out the patio for my daughter's flat here in Valencia. But yes, I, no, I, do, keep, I do keep myself busy uh, and I keep my, my mental agility going as well because I do, I watch uh, the economics of what's happening. Various uh, accounts all over the world, so I do have my own wealth uh, that I manage. I think the other thing that I'm fascinated by, uh, and this is a trait you hear at the moment, these people saying they follow the science. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> And one of the people I would, re- I would relate to who I think uh, is quite inspirational is a guy called Richard Feynman, who is actually a theoretical uh, physicist. He's a Nobel Prize winner, but he's got some fantastic quotes. So I'd ask you to go look him up uh, because some of the things that I'm hearing, uh, and I hear some of the politicians standing up there and absolutely failing every day with how they explain the statistics wrongly every time. Of course, me being a bit of an expert on that stuff, it's it's painful. It's death by a thousand cuts listening to them. From but who are the three people in your life that you've 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 you can look back and go, yep, they they really changed me. Well, the, the guy who is not so well known, I suppose, but that guy Tom Hamor, um, he was a revelation to me because. In, in the work environment, let's say, and if you're working in Scotland and you're working for a company based in Scotland, to get persons to influence and promote you in, in such an open, unselfish way so quickly, we make most people sceptical where we come from. Why is that happening? Um, that, so that Tom, though, was um, a great like an advisor in many ways, because even after that, because Tom succeeded as well, he, he grew into officer material at GE as well. But what happened was that see someone do that, and I had, I, could, I then had a role model. It was good for me, and I thought, well, if that's good for me, it'll be good for the people who work for me as well. So that was a huge thing. My dad, my dad had uh, a great coin of phrase, and he always, he was a Burnsian, uh, so he always had a phrase, I don't know where he got it from, he has all these books on uh, Burns. But he was always uh, very, very much an advisor. Anytime I was going to make a move in my career or if I was reaching a crisis point or something, I would just, uh, you know, it was abstract from my dad. And it's not like he was a banker. He was a, he was a personnel manager in Troon Shipyard when he started out as a young clerk, then became the European HR director 
for an American construction company. But he was always that down-to-earth person about how is it happening with the people, what's this person like? And he was great at that. So he was a great influence on, on me. And I would listen to his opinion. Um, and then the, 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 the last person from a business perspective is Jack Welch. I mean, Jack just nailed it. He had uh, an incredible way of swaying the market as well. Because uh, he would defy the odds with uh, how he grew that business. I mean, it's not the business uh, it was when he was there now. General Electric is nowhere near as large as it used to be. But what he did with that business and how he made people believe uh, and the rate of change he could do things. You know, he, he was the guy who was watching the dot-coms fail in the late 90s before NASDAQ became a proper exchange. And he knew that businesses who had real collateral, if they learned how to do e-business, that they could become competitive as well. GE became one of the first companies to do online sales for plastics, semi-finished plastics in the mid-90s. So, and he, he made sure that all of us knew we had to learn this, otherwise we would become obsolete. Okay, I've taught you to do Six Sigma, now you need to do e-business. So he was such a change agent. So for me, he was uh, probably my favorite of them all in, in the business environment. He was a huge influence in me. Best piece of advice you've ever been given and what advice would you give to the next generation of entrepreneurs, businessmen, or engineers for that matter? <laughs> Why <are we> this? <laughs> well, I mean, the, you know, that's humorously and, and, and seriously, right? But humorously, if, if you're in a business that is in the wrong end of an economic cycle, get out of it. <laughs> Chief risk officers over the years, because I've worked in uh, risk a lot as well, as you may know from my background. Uh, but chief risk officers tend to, it's always good to be the guy coming in at the beginning of a new economic cycle because things are quite benign. And once it gets really turbulent, it's not always the best place to be because you're in the firing line. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but I find with Stuart, although all of that, I, I find in crisis, I think the best advice that I had was you've got to take ownership of it. You have, yeah. you have to have very clear ownership and accountability. And I've been involved in many different crises. I was involved in the credit crunch. I was involved in 9-11. I mean, some of our engines uh, were on these planes that crashed into the World Trade Center. We had to do the traceability. One of them was overhauled in Caledonian. With, uh, yeah. Within two hours, we had to find all the lifetime records on that engine just to make sure it wasn't a manufacturing issue. Wow. Right? And, and also, even when I worked for the Ministry of Defence, we had a massive flood in the desert. I had to go and try to relocate 14,000 villagers into hospitals because their homes were flooded. So right. I, I find that brings out the best in people. So whenever a crisis is happening, you've got to have the right ownership accountability take ownership for it. Don't walk away from it. Uh, a crisis is always good for a change, right? So, <laughs> so I find it infectious. Colin, it's really interesting all the way through. I had the pleasure of working with you for, for just a few years, but just what you've historically said there uh, in your summation, that almost reflects of how I would categorise you from a perspective, and I'm not being sycophantic, but I do remember that you had that ability to be able to speak to the guys on the shop floor very well, 
and tell them first principles and show them how to do things. And you took that ownership at that level, but you didn't uh, shy away from them to go up and speak to the, the, the executive and the board level. It appears as though that's uh, just been a very important factor throughout your life. So it's been fascinating to, to, to hear your, your journey. And uh, yeah. from Callum and I, I've got to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been uh, fascinating, as I said, uh, hearing your, your stories. Thanks very much. No, you're welcome. Uh, and thanks very much for inviting me. I'm very flattered, Stuart, given the, the other guests you've had. Uh, it's been nice to, to do it. It's a good way to catch up for 30 years, Stuart. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.